that is the Taliban. Some of them, not all of them, obviously. Did you know they're going to open a diplomatic office in the country of Qatar? Yeah, the Taliban's going to have a diplomatic office. Um, they said once that they would never negotiate anything while there were foreign troops in Afghanistan, I guess. And so if they, op if they open a diplomatic office in another country, they could go there and negotiate, and that wouldn't be going back on their word in Afghanistan. And the president of Afghanistan said, Afghanistan agrees with the negotiation between the United States of America and the Taliban, which will result in the establishment of an office for the Taliban in Qatar. It said the establishment of the office could lead to an end of the bloody Afghan conflict. The likelihood that the Taliban will remain a potent fighting force after most foreign forces leave by the end of 2014 is driving the U.S. and NATO to seek to implement to, to seek even an incomplete bargain with the insurgents that would keep them talking with the Afghanistan government. On Tuesday, the Taliban announced that they had reached a preliminary understanding to open the representative office an unprecedented step toward peace negotiations that might lead to a winding down of the 10-year conflict. The statement did not say when the office would open. In the past, the Islamist group has publicly opposed peace offers. Conducting talks with the U.S. through an office in Qatar while keeping the Afghanistan government directly involved could satisfy their demands. Hearing that the Taliban has opened a diplomatic office reminds me of the old joke about preachers. You know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. That's right. <laughs> Do you think we will have peace with the Taliban? Boy. Real roll of the dice there. There might be a negotiated ceasefire of sorts. I could see that happening. Sort of a, you leave us alone and we'll leave you alone kind of a deal. Sometimes that's what happens between Christians in churches. But it's not God's will. God's will is for us to have unity and in Philippians chapter 2, as we move through this book and we come to the first section of Philippians 2, we are going to begin to understand how we can have more than a peace treaty, but we can have a genuine kind of unity as we work together in the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests 
of others. You have a diagram on the back of your notes that we're going to fill in a little bit. You've got the propositional notes on the front, the diagram on the back. But I just want to talk about this for a minute because we're going to build this this week and next week as well. We've called this God's path to unity. And you see the people there. The people are standing on a foundation and then they're going to be working through some things. And uh, we'll talk about parts of it this week and parts of it next week. The real question we need to ask is, how can we have genuine unity? How can we genuinely come together and how can we work together to accomplish God's work? Um, the basis of unity is here in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, therefore takes us back to what he's been talking about, the person of Christ, and he's going to go on in talking about the person of Christ. And then he, he uses a word that throws us a little bit in English. And, and unfortunately, the translators of, of all of the major Bibles have had a hard time with it. And it's the word if. Because when we see the word if, we tend to think it means maybe, or it could be, or you know who knows, but it's possible. And that's not what if means in Greek. What, what this word in Greek means is something like, it's really a rhetorical statement. Um, uh, you know, if I were to say uh, um, something about this platform, uh, if there is a drop-off here, I need to be careful. You'd say, well, of course there's a drop-off there, so you do need to be careful. It's a way to say something. And what he says here is akin to this. If there is these things in Christ, and I'm assuming they are there, then you should act in a certain way. And so the, there are four statements that are preceded by this little word, if. And the first word is, if there is any consolation in Christ. And so we understand, first of all, that unity is built on salvation. Unity is built on salvation. The idea of being in Christ. The word consolation is actually that little word for comforter. It's a name of the Holy Spirit, parakaleo, parakalesis. And, and the idea of somebody called alongside to be a helper. And he says, if there, is any, if there is any help from Christ, from you coming into Christ. And we see about that help in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is perhaps a, a great summary of the help we have in Christ, of the encouragement or consolation. When we look around this room, when we think of the body of Christ, we first and foremost need to say, we are all people saved. Now, we know that there are people who come to church uh, from time to time who don't know the Lord, or, or some who may come for a long time and don't know the Lord, and, and, and we understand that the Lord's in the process of saving them. But as we would look at those who, who have given testimony of knowing the Lord, we say, look, all of these people know Christ, and I know Christ. Therefore, we are in Christ, and it encourages me because we are all new creations. The old things have passed. All things are becoming new. It is possible for us to change and grow. 
It is possible for us to come together because he prayed before he left this earth in John 17. He said, Lord, let them be one like you and I are one. Christ prayed for us. He desires unity, and he has given us what we need to be unified in our new creation. We are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we have every reason to believe that unity is possible. The second basis for unity is this. Unity is built on love. You see the phrase there in Philippians 2.1, if there is any consolation of Christ, if any comfort of love. We're not told here in the text whether this love comes from God or if this is the love that is shared amongst people, so we have to assume it's both. 1 John 3.16 summarizes that really well when it says this, by this we know love or we understand love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. One of the bases of being able to be unified is the love of God. Anybody can get together a group of people and have an organization. They're all over. Some of you are part of different organizations. You know, the, the parent organization at school or, uh, you know, your homeschooling network or, um, you know, the Legion or, or there's all kinds of organizations. But the thing that makes this organization different is, first of all, our salvation. And second of all, that kind of love has been demonstrated to us and should be manifested by us as well. God's love for us is the basis of our love for each other. When we think about the struggles that come trying to be unified, one of the thoughts that ought to come is, look how much Christ sacrificed for me. He laid down his life for me. As I try to work together with my brothers and sisters, I need to lay my life down as well. God's excruciating sacrifice on the cross is the standard of our self-denial. Take up your cross and follow me. Our human nature says, push yourself, exalt yourself, get your way. You're right, they're wrong, those kinds of things. God says, listen, care for your brothers and sisters. Lay down your life. God's promise to care for me is my guarantee that giving to you will not leave me empty. One of the challenges with love in the world is, well, we, we want love to be reciprocal. I'll love you if you love me, you know. And, and God says, no, you can lay down your life because when you do, I'll meet your needs. Matthew six thirty three: seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, everything you need. The third basis of our unity is our relationship, our connection to the body of Christ. Look at the, the verse there, verse 1. If any fellowship of the Spirit, the word fellowship, uh, koinonia, communion, connection. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this a little bit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit but one and the same Spirit works all of these, distributing to each one as individually as he wills. 
For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we've all been made to drink of one spirit. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. We have a connection. And we have connections beyond this place to other parts of the body of Christ. There is encouragement from that. There's fellowship in the Spirit. The connection that we have with each other and all true believers comes from the Holy Spirit, and and we sense it, and we're aware of it, and and it provides the, the power for us to genuinely be unified. The fourth basis of unity is mercy. Look at verse 1 again. If The last phrase says, if there's any affection and mercy. If you have the King James, the, it says, if there's any bowels and mercy. And we think, you Lord, have mercy. In, in the Greek language and, and coming out of their culture, they, they used the word for bowel to indicate deep feelings because... You know, when you are excited, you might say, I have butterflies in my stomach. Or if you were nervous, you might get sick to your stomach or things like that. And so they reasoned that your deepest feelings must come from in there. And so they called those feelings the bowels. Okay. So he's talking about very deep feelings. And then he uses the word for mercy. And I I think what he's talking to us about is is the idea of, of a shared sympathy which starts from the Lord. Romans 12.1, the familiar verse tells us, the Apostle Paul says, I'm beseeching you, I'm begging you, because of the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. God was merciful to us in that he did not give us what we deserved. He gave to us salvation. And, and we know that mercy. We know inside We have a sense, oh, God was forgiving to me. God was gracious to me. We have an internal uh, emotional connection with that as well as an intellectual one. And so we appreciate God. When we sing a song of worship and we sing, you are stronger, you are stronger, and we reflect on the fact that God has given us some victory over sin, we, we, we have a perception of what God has done. And we go, oh, isn't God great? We have the affections and the mercies. And he said, we, we should look around and, and think that way about other people. They have God's affection and mercy. And we should share that together. We love the Lord because he has been mercifully kind to us. And out of that experience, mercy should flow. Mercy to our brothers and sisters. One of the places where we, we feel this this connection of the Spirit and the mercy and all of these things together is when there's a baptism. When people get in the baptismal waters and somebody comes up to read their testimony and and they read their story and you're sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're thinking about when you accepted the Lord and there's this tremendous connection that is perceived. You think, yeah, they got saved just like I got saved. And 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 it's a blessing. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying that's, that's the basis of being unified. We have a common experience in Christ. God is saying to us, let your knowledge of this shared mercy lap over to becoming true unity. I began uh, replacing some tile in our shower 
You know, we've pretty much got our house redone, but unfortunately, if there was a if there was a contractor involved, we might have had to sue him for some shoddy workmanship. <laughs> but I have nobody to blame but myself. And uh, one of the things I did was the floor of the shower in our bathroom, in our bedroom there, the, that, and uh, didn't come out right, doesn't drain right. So I said, got to chip that baby up and recontour it and make it all drain right. And I was envisioning ahead the process. I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to need this and this. And I thought, you know, and I was in the Home Depot getting a couple things, and I was looking around. And I thought, oh, man, they have that tool, that tool with a vibrator. It goes, what do you call those things? You know, a little, it's a tool like this, and it has the blade that goes back and forth, and you stick it into stuff like grout, and it just goes, oh, man. But they cost about 80 or 90 bucks, you know. And I was looking at that and trying to justify that. And I went, no, I have a tool. And I saw this thing on the rack that was an adapter for the Rotozip tool that I have. I thought, I can get that thing and put it in for 20 bucks. I'm good to go. I had what I needed already at home. But I wasn't looking at that. I'm thinking, what new thing do I need? You don't ever do that, do you? I believe what God's telling us in chapter 2, verse 1, is everything that's connected with salvation and bringing us into the body of Christ, it's all there. It is the foundation. It is the foundation of what we need in the church to be unified. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. That means it is possible for us to do whatever God asks us to do. We should never look at a command of God and say, you know, that's just not possible. When we're talking that way, we're thinking as humans, or as the scripture would call us, carnal. We're we're a Christian who's acting like an unbeliever, and we're looking and saying, you know, some things just can't happen. The truth is, if God commands it, he empowers it by his truth. If there is strength from being in Christ through salvation, if there is encouragement from being loved by God, if there is connection through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if there is a common experience of mercy from God, and given that word if, he is assuming it is so, then what should be happening is... This, we should be creating mercy. We should be creating, uh, excuse me, we should be creating unity. We have this foundation and basis to move ahead. The first part of defining unity, defining unity is this. Unity means to have common thoughts. Unity means to have common thoughts. Uh, In most of your translations, it says be like-minded, the literal rendering would be to think the same thing. Now, if that isn't one of the hardest commands of God, I don't know what it is. I want all you people to think the same thing. <laughs> That's likely. Let's, let's take a vote. How many people are going to Dairy Queen for lunch? And how many people are going to the Chinese buffet? And how, you know, how many are going home? And 
How many are going to grab whatever they can find out of the cupboard? And how many have a roast in the oven? Why don't you all think the same thing? No, he's not saying be robots. One commentator, though, put it this way about this phrase. To actively strive or to chase a common understanding and genuine agreement. But another commentator put it this way too, our thoughts and our actions are largely influenced by heredity, environment, and education. Hence, it is well nigh impossible to find a group of Christians who will see everything from the same viewpoint. How then shall we dissolve our differences? Well, we dissolve them because common thoughts come from a common mind. If we are going to think the same thing, we have to have a common mind. 1 Corinthians 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Do you feel like you have the mind of Christ? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. Part of what we receive in salvation is the ability to think like God. Now, how how does that happen? It happens this way from 1 Corinthians 2. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Next verse. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This is the mind of Christ. To say that we have the mind of Christ is not to say, I now have the ability to think things up like he does or think things through like he does other than through the word of God. This is the mind of Christ. Would you look at your Bible and say with me, this is the mind of Christ. Say it. This is the mind of Christ. Now, when I ask it that way and then, or I say it that way and then say, is this? your mind. We have the mind of Christ. There is only one way we can think the same thoughts, and that is if those thoughts come from the same source. There are many reasons for learning God's truth from the Bible, all kinds of things to do with our, with our lives as individuals. But one of the reasons we ought to know God's truth is so that we can think alike. Now, obviously, we can even stop there for just a minute and say, okay, if we're really thinking God's truth, does that mean we're all going to think the exact same thoughts? No, but when we come to discuss an issue, we will apply the same wisdom to that issue. We won't be reaching out in left field for some crazy humanistic idea. We'll be applying the mind of Christ to this issue that we've got to work on. And as we do that, 
we also have to have a common love. Part of the definition of unity is not only a common thought, but a common love. These words from Jesus sum it up well. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like this, is, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that means, first of all, we must love God more than any other person. If you're going to think, if we're going to think together, we have to have the mind of Christ from God's word, and we have to have the love of God that is focusing our behavior, and it means loving God more than any other person, especially yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Luke 12, we read this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that seems harsh. Some people read those kind of harsh statements of Christ and and then try to wipe them away as though, well, he didn't really mean that. I think if you take on the balance of what Christ said in the Gospels and the balance of the New Testament, you will understand that he, he doesn't want you to hate your family. There are specific instructions about taking care of your family. But what he is saying is by comparison... If you're going to compare your love for the Lord to your love for your earthly family, this love should be up here, and this love should be subservient to that love. Do you love God more than any other person, including yourself? If we have various loyalties other than God, we will not be able to agree on doing ministry together. The loves that we have cause us to make priority choices for our time and our money. If you're following a certain man or a woman and they're teaching of God's word more than you follow God's word, then you, we will not find common ground. We have to love God more than any other person. And we have to love people equally. We have to love people equally. Look at Philippians chapter 2. He says, be like-minded, having the same love. Again, he he doesn't tell us whether it's toward God or man. We have to assume it's both. Having Having an equal kind of love. James addresses our tendency when he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I don't know how their church meetings were back in the day. I, I know that they met in people's homes. Um, I would assume that they didn't have enough folding chairs to go around. 
I mean, how many of our homes have enough chairs for, for more than, I mean, in our living room, I don't know how many we can seat in our living room. We've got a bunch of couches and stuff. But it does, you know, you can imagine if you had a church group gathering there, you'd run out of chairs. And the scenario he's drawing is this. Somebody comes in, and in that day, you could tell right away people who had money and people who didn't because it showed on their clothing. Today, we can go to the clearance sale, and you know we can all look decent you know, for not a lot of money. But they'd see a rich guy come in. Oh, hey, hey, you poor guy, get up and give him your chair. You sit on the floor. And you're all quiet because you're going, would people really do that? Well, apparently they would. Now, the issue of partiality, or we would more broadly call it prejudice, has all kinds of standards attached to it. Um, one of my favorite stories of prejudice breaking down is about Emil Quinones, who fought in World War II, and George Fujimoto, who also was in the military in World War II. And of course, if you don't know, George Fujimoto was Japanese, and uh, Emil Quinones was Italian from New York. And George was the first Jap friend he ever had. Because until then, he considered the Japs to be the enemy. And not only was George his friend, but he brought him to church every week until he accepted the Lord. And Emil said, he washed my feet. We all have prejudices. I've never been prejudiced against the Japanese. But some people in my father's generation were, and maybe are. When I, 35 years ago, when I was first in the ministry, it seemed like there was a lot more harsh sentiment against Canadians than there are, is now. You know, now we know they're fueling our economy, so we say, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Back then, they called them derogatory names. I mean, we all have a prejudice, perhaps. There are some that are common, some that are uncommon. And the question that James asks is, when somebody walks in that door, and we look at them, and we size them up, and we're tempted to go, sit over there. Oh, hey, you, uh, yeah. He says, that's wrong, that's evil. He said, if we're in Christ, we should have a common love, a same love. Whether people have one color or another, or one decoration or another, or one attachment or another, whatever it is, we need to say, you know what? We are one in the body of Christ, and I am going to love you just the same as every other person. Well, the third part of our definition of unity is this. Unity means that we need to have and we need to strive for a common existence. The phrase here is kind of interesting, or the word um, in, in chapter 2, he says, be like-minded, have the same thoughts, have the equal love. And then number three, he says, be of one accord. The literal word, word is be one-souled, S-O-U-L, soul. Have, live like one soul. Share your existence. Here's a description of the first church. 
from Acts chapter 2. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now, God doesn't mandate that we have that we all put all of our goods together and then write checks out to everybody every month. He doesn't mandate social welfare in the church. These people literally did it, and there were some reasons for that. But one of the reasons was they just plain lived together. They shared their existence. We all have different concepts of, of family and of connection But one of the things we should be striving for as a church family is a shared existence. When one of my children has a need or one of their families, I try to think of what I might be able to do to help. Now, sometimes it is wise as a parent to let your children struggle, but I never say, es tu problema, it is your problem. Learned that in Spain, you know. Eh. No, that's never my heart attitude, and it's not just because we have a blood connection. I, I don't look at my kids and say, "Well, I've got to do something." No, I want to do something, and it's because of a shared existence. We're in this together. And somehow that's the attitude we need to have and the pursuit the attitude we need to pursue with our church family. We're in this together. We're in the body of Christ together. Do you have a one soul commitment to the body of Christ? That's what real unity is. Fourth and, and lastly, in terms of defining unity. Unity means we have a common purpose. It means we have a common purpose. It's, it's interesting how God caused the Apostle Paul to write this. He says at the beginning of verse 2, he says, be like-minded or think the same thoughts. And then at the end of the phrase, he says, at the end of the verse, he says it again a little differently. Thinking the one thing. Both the NIV and the New American Standard translate this as being one in purpose. And I would assume they arrived at this translation because if you are constantly thinking the same thing, then you're all headed in the same direction. It would equal having one purpose. To be constantly attempting to achieve something together. When my girls were in junior high at the Christian school, Seattle Christian, their choir teacher got sick, and uh, the school said, uh, maybe, I don't know, did you volunteer me? I don't know how I got on the hook for that. But uh, probably Molly went, oh, my dad could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Lord. So there's like 40 junior hires in choir, 7th and 8th graders, and... uh, And so they were learning a cantata to present as their concert uh, at Christmas time. And it was a great uh, contemporary Christian bunch of music. And and so I went there to lead them. And there's 40 of them sitting like this in the choir room. (laughs) 
most frustrating thing I've ever done in my life because if I would turn this way to say talk to the girls about some part they're singing, this side just erupted in talking and discussion. And then I would turn over here and say, be quiet, well, whatever. And this side would erupt in here. And, and I could never get them all to think the same thing. I mean, literally, up until the performance, we're all standing behind a set ready to walk in, and I'm trying to get them together and have a little prayer like we do in choir here, you know, and trying to, trying to kind of spiritualize this mess somehow and, and get them to think in the same direction. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. Even right before we went on, they would not all focus together. they just all in their own worlds. Okay? Oh, man. We have to be focused on the same purpose. And, and as I would extrapolate out God's purposes for us, I would see four. Evangelizing the lost. We know that that's one of God's great purpose for us as individuals, us as a body. We have to be saying, okay, this... And, and again... This is the definition of unity, having one purpose. And so what has to happen is if we're going to be unified, when we're discussing the budget, when we're discussing the facility, when we're discussing whatever we're talking about, one of the thoughts that needs to come into our mind is, how will this help us evangelize? Or will it take away from evangelizing? Or when we're talking at Christmas time and, and somebody comes and says, uh, I, I, I want to do Christmas shoeboxes. Well, one of our thoughts is, does that connect to evangelizing the lost? Well, yes, it does. Okay, then it falls in. So we have a, a basis to make a decision about what we're going to do based on what it's going to accomplish. Evangelizing the lost. Number two, Discipling the found. We're here together growing up in Christ. We don't come together for entertainment. Hopefully the process is enjoyable, because I think growing in the Lord is enjoyable, but we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be inspired. It's a word that gets used a lot in contemporary Christianity. We want to have an inspiring message. You know, sometimes you might go out going, wow, that was heavy. If it's God's word and it's pushing you to be like Christ, then that's what we're about. We're about discipling those who have been found. Eating cookies is great. Talking about how bad the rest of the world is, is not great. We're here to grow up in Christ. We're here to grow up in Christ, to disciple the found Number three, we're here to reach the unreached. Uh, missions, reaching out beyond Ferndale. That's part of God's call to us. And we ought to be involved in it in, all, in every way that we possibly can. And number four, contending for the faith. This is a phrase directly out of Jude, about verse three or four, when he says, we need to contend for the faith. What does that mean? That means we need to preach the truth and we need to call error, error, so that you will be discipled correctly in Christ and be discerning in the world and lead other people to a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. We could go on and perhaps break these down even further, but you get the idea. This is a church, 
It's part of the body of Christ, and we're here to do His bidding. When we're trying to make decisions about programs or budgets or buildings, we have to have this same purpose or we'll never agree. I have an acquaintance who was working on a project one time. He's a grandfather. He was taking care of his grandson who was a young boy, and he was down working away, and the grandson comes up and he says, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And he says, well, what are you thinking? And the grandson says, nothing. (laughs) Sometimes we think the only way there can be unity is if there is no thoughts, if there are no concerns, sort of like I'm just going to empty myself out and go along with the flow. Whatever happens, happens. That's not what God says at all. In fact, just the opposite. He says, absolutely, you should think. Absolutely, you should love. Absolutely, you should care. But your, your, your thoughts and your love and your care all needs to be flowing in the way that I have defined it. Unity is possible in marriages, in families, in churches, if the people in those relationships are walking in Christ and growing in Him. May it be so. And may it grow in us. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to think the thoughts of Christ, to have his mind, to have his love. As we start this new year, Father, help us to to examine how we think and how we love and how we act and, and, and really commit ourselves to being like Christ when we're together, as well as when we're apart. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Worship teams.